This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is very excited to be here on a Sunday. Well, not really Sunday as such. I mean, it's Sunday when you're listening to this, thankfully for us, and not that we don't love you, but we recorded this on a Friday, but we wanted to leave you something special for your weekend. This is a special, the first for 2020, special mailbag episode. I'm Scott Phillips, with me as always, and very happy to be here on a mailbag episode is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. How are you, Doc? I am very good, Captain. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. We're currently, as people listening to this, two days into a three-day weekend, so that can't be bad. It can't be bad at all. Happy Australia Day for tomorrow, for those listening. Uh, Doc, we've got a massive mailbag, as I said, on Friday. We're not even going to touch the sides of this one, so uh, maybe, just possibly, there might be more mailbag episodes, mailbag special episodes into our future, but we'll do our best to get through as many as we can in the time we have allotted to us. Let's kick off with a question from Mitch. Mitch says, hey, Scott and Doc, I hope you had a lovely Christmas and have a great new year. Thank you, mate. Loving the mailbag over Christmas. Thank you. Well, it was our pleasure. We have lots of fun doing mailbags and uh, we're always, we just love getting getting the questions, getting a chance to answer them. Uh, as I say, many, many, many times over. Um, we just, you know, the questions that are interesting to you are the ones that are interesting to us. So we're, we're glad to have a chance to answer them. He says, I'm just having a chat with my friend, Will. So Will, I assume you're listening to, so good day, Will, about treasury wine. And we thought we would send you through a question. Thinking about the changing climate in Australia, as well as potentially issues Treasury is facing in Asian markets, are you still a big fan of this one, Scott? Appreciate your insight. Cheers, Mitch. Mate, do you have a view or will I just... uh, Well, you you know, um, I'll just quickly add one thing that... This is a, this is a tangent actually to um, you can't start with it. Oh, is it sometimes you can start with a tangent. Come on, is it really a tangent? That's it's how you just start. Just the beginning of the year, you start with a tangent. So we actually got through we got through this week's normal episode without a tangent. I know well, that's because we recorded them twice. <laughs> that could be why. But here's the tangent, right? All right hit me. So I was reading yesterday, the day before. I can't mm-hmm. remember. I think it was on the fin um, that um, uh, Tyrell. Oh, it's a big winery out there. I think that's privately owned mm-hmm. in uh, the Hunter Valley. Yep. Uh, and I love their wine, actually. They make it wonderful. I think it's how it's pronounced. Tyrrell. Tyrrell. Yep. Okay. Tyrrell. Uh, excuse me, Tyrrell, guys, for you know, <laughs> butchering your name. But I, your wine I is I say fantastic. that mostly because I, uh, I used to be in the wine game a few years back. I worked for, uh, for Woolworths Liquor, so I, I know my way around, well... Maybe, maybe occasionally a drop myself, but uh, no more way around the, around the wine. But, but you know, the point is they make wonderful wine and one of the their CEO, which is essentially a family-owned business, they basically was saying that you know 80% of the wine or 80% of the grapes that they've grown this year is destroyed Ooh. because of the smoke. And oh, not fire, but smoke. Well, not fire, yeah, no, the smoke. Basically, because of That's the smoke, funny. they can't use it on high-quality wine and they figure that, in the, and this after testing with the Australian Wine Institute and one of the universities, I forgot which one it is. I had um, no idea idea that smoke would damage growth. Well, that's what I did not know that either, right? right? So, I mean, you know, this is an indirect sort of effect you yeah, know, yeah. of bushfire didn't directly impact it, huh. but they're saying that a lot of Hunter wine, especially the higher quality one, yeah. is going to be impacted. Now, of course, like if it's high quality wine, it's really, really a special wine, and if you make fewer of it, I guess the price goes up, so maybe it doesn't make a difference, but I mean, this is so... I'll take it off their hands for, for a discount. <laughs> they're not going to do- be that bad, can I? <laughs> I'll try it for them. Well, they're, you know, they're not going to make it. Actually, that's what the thing oh, is. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're not, you know, that's basically when they're saying it's destroyed. It's not that they're going to make it and sell cheap wine. Huh. Right? You can't make the wine with it. They're not just going to make the wine with there it. There you go. Right? There's too much reputational damage. There you go. So, uh, but anyways, that's my side story and I have nothing else to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, I think. Um, look, <laughs> It's a great question, Mitch and, and Will. Um, guys, here's the here's my general thought. So, uh, the, the one thing about Treasury, I will say, and this is a good this is good news to, for Treasury at least, is they don't own most of their vineyards. Um, there is a look. There's two ways to well, I won't say make money in wines because this is the point I'm going to make. There's two parts of the wine industry. There is the vine or the, the vine growing, the grape growing, and there is the wine making and selling. The former, unfortunately, is a terrible, terrible business to be in. Um, there is a, there has been, there remains at least, maybe not this year because of the bushfires, maybe as you say, Doc. But there has been a remains a glut of Australian wine grapes. If you look at the price, and let's pick an example because I mentioned I used to be in the, well, I was saying the wine business sounds more exciting. I used to work in a bottle shop, and then I, then I worked in Woolworths Liquor and Head Office for a while. Um, the price of a Canunga Hill Shiraz Cabernet is about the same as it was when I worked in the grog shop more than two decades ago. So that, that gives you a sense of how little price, you know, think about the inflation rate, think about house prices, frankly, since then. I, I don't know how much house you could buy with a, how many how many bowls of grain, uh, Kanunga Hill you could buy with a, a house, but it's more now than it used to be. 
So the price hasn't moved largely because, A, there's a lot of competition in the wine space, both from a retail concentration uh, perspective and from a simply number of brands out there, but also there's just so many grapes, so much wine, particularly in that kind of a cheap to moderate price range. There's so much wine, so many grapes being harvested. It's very, very hard to make a buck. Now, that's if you're the winemaker. Oh, sorry, the, 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 the vineyard owner, I should say. If you're the winemaker, there's actually a lot of money to be made. And so if you can, if you think about the way that kind of comes together, um, the, 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 unfortunately, the poor old, poor old, um, uh, the poor old grape grower makes nothing. But if you can, like treasury estates, get only the best grapes, if you can make them in a good quality wine, you can sell them for a very high price. Well, the margin is all yours to take. And that's kind of what happens here. Now, I'm absolutely sure they pay more for the highest quality grapes. So it's not exactly a zero-sum game. Uh, they don't make all the extra profit. But if you think about how much you can charge more for, say, Grange for, what is it, 600 bucks a bottle or something, versus Kanungi Hill for 12 or 15 um, I guarantee you it doesn't cost an extra $585 for the grapes, right? So the, the, the margin there, yes, there's some more time on the in the barrels. There's more time in the um, – what do they call them? More time, anyway, being, being kept in, in bottles, uh, being cellared. Uh, so not kept in the cellars, I suppose. They're probably not really cellars. But, you know, kept aside for multiple years before it's released. There is cost in that. There's inventory cost. There's real estate cost. So it does cost more to produce a bottle of grains than a bottle of Canunga Hill. But the difference, of course, is that the, the difference in price is nowhere near, or the difference in cost, sorry, is nowhere near the change in, in price. So you get a lot more for grains. You don't pay anywhere near as much for it. That means your margins are good and you're making out like a bandit compared to what the poor old wine growers are making. I don't, so sorry, bottom line for that is I'm not too worried about the cli changing climate because Penfolds can kind of source its wines from wherever it wants. Treasury as a group and with its other brands, Wins, Lindemans and others, can kind of source the, the grapes from wherever they want. Now, at, at an extreme um, maybe that puts some some pricing power back in the hands of the remaining vineyards in the worst case of climate change, and maybe there are simply fewer grapes produced. That absolutely does put some pressure on the cost line for, for Treasury. I do think, though, that frankly, over time, I expect their prices can, will continue to rise at a faster rate, particularly in that premium range, at a faster rate than the costs increase, and that should be good news for Penfold's margins, for Treasury's margins overall. So yes, it's a risk. It's a known risk. I think they'll be okay. I think they'll see their way through it. There are no guarantees of that, by the way. It could very well go the other way. I just don't think it's very likely. Um, and to your point about Asian markets, look, the issues in the Asian markets, largely a bit of bit of uh, copyright infringement, a bit of the occasional trade embargo by China. Um, they pretend it's just normal, normal uh, port uh, operations. And maybe it is, though. I don't think so. The honest reality is over time, I just don't expect that these things are a big deal. I think if we look out and we're, we're looking at five plus years at the Motley Fool, I'm looking at 10 plus. I mean, I, I just think, you know, the, the chance that many, many, many more bottles are sold to many, many more people in Asia in 10 years compared to today is very, very high. And as a result, I'm a very happy treasury shareholder for the record. And it's also a recommendation of our services. Any more to add to that, mate? No, sir. That thing is pretty covered. Very good. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Doc, the next question comes from James. James says, hey, Scott and Doc, my partner and I have just subscribed to your paid service, thank you, and a long-time listeners to your awesome podcast. Thank you for that as well. See, James, now you know how to really – this is – listeners, if you're going to send an email, if you're going to send a message, you're going to send a, a Facebook message or an Instagram message or a whatever – James knows what he's doing. Just, just copy James. Be like James. James is smart. Be like James. Uh, he says, my partner and I recently engaged. Oh, congratulations, guys. That's pretty cool. Just purchased our first home and have started investing. That's a good news story so far, mate. I might have to line four. And so far, we've got some A, a they're members. B, they listen. C, they gave us some good feedback. And D, they've bought the home and they're engaged. So. A lot of good news. Be like James. James has got it going on. Well done, James. Uh, you, don't, you haven't given us... Oh, you have. Your partner's name is Grace. So, Grace and James, congratulations on your engagement, guys. Um, sounds like you're uh, well set up for a, for a wonderful life together. So, congratulations and well done. Uh, they, he says, together we managed to invest 20K in stocks last year without much of a strategy in place. We would like growth stocks as we're only 28 and have a lot of time for them to compound. But we were also looking for dividends as we would like to supplement future potential lost income, i.e. maternity leave. How do you decide what to focus on? Do we go for growth now and dividends closer when we will lose one income? Or do we go half-half? Or all dividends now? All right, Doc. Growth now, dividends now, half and half, dividends later. Again, we can't give personal advice. So we can't tell James and Grace specifically what they should do. But generally speaking, what's your advice in this sort of situation? Well, again, yeah. So this is the specific circumstances. Um, 
make require specific decisions. Yeah, right. Um, it, it really, like, I mean, if, like, my general view is that if somebody's got a lot of time in front of them and they, you know, can invest, basically they can earn and have some savings and therefore invest that savings while keeping aside um, some rainy day cash. Mm-hmm. Right, so I'd, I'd basically say if you have a rainy day cash uh, or some amount of savings that you have sef- separated and kept for the rainy day, and then you are able to survive on, say, one income and still have some savings, uh, then in that circumstances, I would say that, you know, like, given somebody is young, I would basically go for growth because, you know, you the compounding really starts doing its magic in the, you know, right. the 30th, you know, the 20th year or the 30th year, right? I mean, you, yep. you really see... Uh, the magic uh, yep. happen. Um, whereas um, you could go to dividend dividend route too, but I mean, you know, the dividend companies typically are not growth companies, like especially the ones that pay a substantial amount of dividend because they, the reason they're paying the dividend is they don't have any reinvestment opportunities in the first place uh, or substantive reinvestment opportunities. So, uh, yeah, my preference is always to go for the growth stocks. But yeah, again, the other thing I'll point out that is... E- Without having a separate amount set aside for rainy day, mm. I wouldn't count on dividend stocks being that cash supplementer. Especially if you know, if mm. you know, if, if if you're thinking about maternity leave, and you're you know, even if you're thinking about it in five years' time, you know, it's it's hard to uh, to be in a situation where you expect that you know in in 5 years time or whatever 3 years time or you know whatever is the time frame that one is looking at that the, those dividend stocks at that point in time are going to be paying dividend right mm-hmm. i mean it could be yep. that something happens in the market and they you know and therefore they're not paying dividends at that time uh, quite unlikely for some of the big dividend pairs like you know the blue chip dividend pairs but that can happen so mm-hmm. again uh, i would just point that out so th- those are sort of my general thoughts again you know if you're young if you've got a lot of runway ahead of you yep. to go for growth yeah good 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 thoughts i would agree with that look the reality is going to be that between now and your retirement you're only going to earn a certain amount of money and you're going to have to put that money somewhere and if you're going to need some of it to fund or to partially fund a maternity leave then whether you kind of get it from dividends, whether you put that money aside and use that specifically to fund it, it's kind of the same amount of money, right? Like whatever money you don't invest doesn't compound, but then you've got it to spend. Same kind of idea with dividend stocks. Whatever you take out of the market also doesn't doesn't um, compound at that point. You're 28. I don't know how, how quickly you're looking to have kids, but I'm to Doc's point, probably sometime, I guess, five or seven years, um, just generally speaking. Have them as early as late as you want, of course. But um, I don't think it's likely that you're going to compound quickly enough that money is materially useful at that point, at least in the size you think. Um, and also, as Doc says, if you take money out, it kind of isn't compounding for you. Now, the reality is if you need that money to live, you need it to live, right? So whether you whether you invest it and take it out or whether you never invest it in the first place, you kind of got the same problem. Um, and as Doc says, again, you've got that issue of, you know, is it definitely going to come through? Oh, I think I think I agree. I think I think I'd probably because you can't rely on it, I would use the rainy day fund. I think I would also invest in growth or at least in the stocks you think have got the best overall total long-term return, right? Now, in the US, the best stock over 50 years was actually Altria, which is the old Philip Morris, the cigarette company. That's never been considered a growth stock and it was still the best performing company in the uh, you know on the on the exchange. Berkshire despite its recent underperformance has smashed the market and it's not exactly a growth stock over 50 years, right? So I wouldn't say growth is the only way to succeed with investing. Um, I think it's a very good way to do it, by the way. I, I tend to prefer growth stocks on average. Doc almost exclusively, I think it's fair to say, prefers growth stocks. So it is a way of doing it. I just wouldn't, again, I'm not trying to discourage you from doing it, just, just to say that there are other ways of making a buck in investing without just growth. And I don't think you need to necessarily just think about one or the other for the sake of it. The last thing I would say about dividend stocks as a general rule is please don't think that a dividend stock is necessarily great or even good because it pays a dividend. There's a lot of high yielding, in air quotes, stuff. A stock that pays a high dividend yield as a percentage of its share price. That's kind of rubbish or not worth owning. So just, again, be a little bit careful. They don't buy just for income, particularly at your age, um, because the chances are if you look for the highest yielding stuff, it's probably going to cost you in terms of your total long-term return, even after you go back to work. Anything more on that, Doc? No, I have nothing to add. Beautiful. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, mate, I've saved this one specially for our uh, for our podcast, for our mailbag special podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it came from Shane. And, and uh, so, look, on Facebook, people can send us direct messages. 
and they can ask us questions and, and get our investment advice. And so I, I, this is this is it was quite a while ago now. This was back in uh, mid mid December. I uh, I opened up the Facebook page, the thing, the the web pagey thing that people do on the internet these days. And uh, I got a question from Shane. Like, Great! I wonder what Shane's going to ask us. I opened up. He says, um, "Is there an afterlife?" <laughs> <laughs> and and I said, "Is that one for the podcast?" He said, "What does that mean?" I said, "Well, I thought it might have been a question for our podcast." He said, "Oh, okay, that's cool." Um. Shane, I'm not sure if you... It doesn't sound like you're a listener, mate, and so you're probably not hearing this. And for others out there, I don't know. I don't. Uh, honestly, I, there are some questions that we can help with. There are some questions that, frankly, are best left to the keeper. And so um, I, I don't know if there's a religion podcast out there. I'm not sure if there is a uh, science podcast out there. I'm not sure where else you might go for that question, Shane, but uh, I'm going to have to apologize, mate. Unless Doctor got any words of wisdom... Uh, my words of wisdom would be that there may be life at some point in time in Mars, but I don't know if there is afterlife. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, uh, look, I, I'll, all I'll leave you with is a bit of Beatles. Just, just let it be, Shane. Just let it be. When I find myself in time, anyway. All I right. love the question nonetheless. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. A bit of light, light relief for our, our mailbag episode. And Shane, if you are serious, uh, I hope you find the answer you're looking for. All right. My, back to the serious stuff. Question from David. Dave says, firstly, I'm a huge fan of the show. Thank you, David. And listening to the podcast makes the frequent long-distance driving I do much more bearable. I've been investing for about a year now and still consider myself new to investing. Good man. We're about, I'm about 20 years in and I'm still new to it. I currently have some bank stocks for the dividend and a raise account. And I want to know what your opinion is of raise, which is R-A-I-Z, previously known as Acorns. I currently have my money invested in an aggressive portfolio, which is... I won't go through the numbers here. Half S&P 200. I wonder if it's the ASX 200. Um, little bits of the S&P 500. A quarter at Asian ETF. Some European, some corporate bonds, some composite bonds, and a high interest cash ETF. All right. So about half ASX 200, about a quarter Asia, and the rest kind of US, Europe, and bonds. I want to know, is this a wise choice to keep my money with a 9% return over the last year and a $2.50 monthly management fee? Being able to take money in and out without a brokerage fee and no minimum amount is what appeals to me as I don't often have large amounts to invest and I can build my portfolio gradually with recurring and roundup payments. Is this a good choice or would I have better luck investing in the stock market businesses, buying ETFs through a broker instead of through a service like Raise? I'm 25 and starting relatively early. I want to make sure I'm setting off on the right track for building wealth. Regards, and that's from David. Doc, Raise and this particular mix, how would you think about it? So, so just to clarify first, so Raise as a platform basically allows you to invest in a bunch of ETFs, right? So Does it was originally built as one of those things where, you know, it's the old ad on TV, you spend four dollars for or you spend three dollars ninety five for a coffee and it rounds up the transaction. So you transfer five cents to your, your raise account and rounds up to the nearest dollar. Yeah. And they say, and then by the way, you add some regular money every every week and then you can invest in ETFs. Yeah, but 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 you can't invest in individual stocks. Not so as far as I know. Yeah. So yeah. I I mean look I mean, I don't mind the, like, I mean, if somebody is just investing in the selection of ETFs mm. available mm -hmm. and they don't have a large amount of money and therefore they don't want to pay the transaction fee of $10 for buying and selling and they won't have the ability to buy frequently, yep. this sounds like a good deal. Uh, at least to me, like I mean, it sounds like a good deal to pay two fifty if you're, you know, if you're able to buy every month a little bit mm -hmm. of, of the stocks that you want to. I mean, the flip side, of course, is. You're only being able to buy those ETFs that are on offer. Yep. And I mean, technically, you could also bunch your dollars together to buy individual stocks if you wanted to. So that's the other flip side. Mm -hmm. um, so again, if I mean, and and the nine percent return. I mean, if you're buying a bunch of ETFs, um, you are constrained by what those ETFs eventually are going to do. Um, of course, you can try to find a market beating combination by changing the ETFs. Um, and and so on, yep. so so that's all fine. So, I mean, if if your investment, if your goal is to invest little amounts and not to invest in individual shares, then this is, I guess, fine. If you want to start learning about investing in individual shares and you want to over time, as you know, as you as you grow, as you grow in your in your in your career and you earn more money, and you want to invest that. Um, you know, it, it might be a good idea to open a brokerage account that allows you access to the entire stock market, and then you know you can you could, again, as I said, 
you know, group money over multiple months and then use that. You know, so maybe you make a purchase every quarter instead of like every month. So, so those are sort of two different thoughts. Again, it really depends on what yep. he's trying to do. Good advice, mate. I think that's perfect advice. Uh, $2.50 a month doesn't feel like a lot. Now, it is a decent amount over a year and potentially, depending on how much you're actually rounding up and adding, it could actually take a reasonable chunk out. Um, I... I, the other option is Comsex Pocket, which is different. I think it's is it two bucks a trade. I think. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like similar. I think trade. they're charging yeah. you a small amount for the trade each yeah, trade. Yeah, yeah. Right. So look, I, here's the thing: you don't want to be investing so little that these amounts matter. I guess at the end of the day, right? If you're investing twenty, thirty bucks a month and paying two dollars fifty for the privilege, you're getting taken to the cleaners. If you can round up to a few hundred bucks at a time. I mean, uh, Comsec, as, as Doc's already mentioned, you can trade it for $10 a trade for less than $1,000 worth of shares at a time. So if you can save up to 500 bucks worth at a time, uh, spend 10 bucks, that's 2% for the brokerage, that's a pretty good deal. I'd say that arguably is better than a Raise or even a Comsec pocket. So start with one of these things. The, the good thing about Raise and Pocket, why I'm reluctant to criticize them is because it starts people getting investing. It, it teaches you about the market. It develops a discipline of saving regularly. Those things are worth so much over the, over a lifetime, right? Whatever you spend in fees, whatever is kind of not super economical right now, the benefit you get from being exposed to the market, exposed to investing, when you've got a million dollars plus by the time you're 60, you're going to be looking back going, man, it was a lot to spend then, but I feel really good about it because it helped me learn. It gave me some exposure. It, all those good things that, that come from just getting started. So I don't want to ever, ever, ever discourage anybody from using something like this. Um, I do think probably um, a pocket might be an alternative. And frankly, as, as Doc's already mentioned, getting to a decent, you know, a few hundred bucks, 500 bucks, 700 bucks at a time, and then investing for $10 is probably an even better solution if you can do it. Um, that's the other thing. The other thing I'd say is I don't mind the portfolio you've got, um, but frankly, when you've got 4% corporate bonds, 3% composite bonds, uh, 3% in cash, I think to some degree, that's probably a, a preset portfolio potentially. Um, I, I just don't know. I don't know whether you, that is necessarily helping you. Now, it's only probably 10% total up. So again, it's not a big deal and I wouldn't want to discourage you from investing in something if this is the only option, go with it. Um, but generally speaking, Doc and I would say over the long term, shares tend to be the best asset. You'll have a bit less volatility if you've got cash and bonds, but I don't think anyone needs them in a portfolio as long as you can deal with the volatility. Doc? No, I have nothing. I think I think that's good. I was going to say that, but you've covered it. Yeah, that there's a bond exposure, which seems not necessary. Beautiful. All right, let's move on. We got a question from Nathan Mace. Says, Hi, Scott and Doc. Loving the podcast and information. Thank you. As a newbie to self-investing myself, I've learned a lot about it. Just wondering if this could go on your Triple M podcast. Well, guess what? It has. It does, and it will. I've had a financial advisor since two thousand and three and have recently been diving into the books, podcasts, and other resources learning about investing, mainly passive investment with ETFs. I'm ready to withdraw my finances from my advisor's overpriced yacht fund and go it alone. I'm quite confident enough now to know what ETFs I'll be purchasing, mostly Vanguard, in a mixed ratio of both Australian and global indexes and gold and Australian bonds. My main query is there, oh sorry, is, is there a rule of thumb with percentages of each index as to what the defensive ratio is? Is there a set in stone ratio or chart I can refer to? I'd like a high growth option as I'm 34 and I want to achieve financial independence as early as possible. If I was to say have five ETFs, three being Australian global indices, the other two being gold and Australian bonds, what percentage should I put in each ETF? to achieve a high growth portfolio. I'm under the impression it's 90% growth and 10% defensive. Please help me unscramble my brain. I've read too much and I've confused myself. Full on. Cheers, Nathan. That's an awesome question. It dovetails nicely into the last one, mate, which is why I put these two together. Your thoughts on building a high growth portfolio with ETFs? Okay, Nathan, that's a brilliant question. Again, like with all of these things, you've given a, given a lot of details, so, but but still the details are um, insufficient in the sense that, I, you know, we can't really give any personal advice based Correct. on that information. Yep. So again, so just some gener generic thoughts around um, building a high growth portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. um, if somebody wants to build a high growth portfolio and they have got a long a runway or long time frame of investing, then... Uh, as as Scott was mentioning for the previous question, you generally don't need uh, to have you know bond exposure, for example. But bonds, by definition, unless they are you know more in the junk bond category, don't actually return, <laughs> have low returns. 
um, so, so, so the bond is basically a form of you know it's, it's a proxy it's a cra- proxy for cash with higher with slightly higher returns than what one would get from say cash or term deposit. So that that seems like not necessary in my view, um, with the proviso that one has kept some uh, rainy day funds aside, whatever is the appropriate amount of rainy day fund. You know, you should always have in, and and never have funds that you would need mm-hmm. in the next three to five years yeah. uh, invested because again the market can be volatile over the short term and you don't want to be pulling cash out of the market because you need it at the wrong time right so so that's something to keep in mind the um in terms of like you know composition i mean if i was to like just use etfs i would just do some combination of um an asx 300 etf and the reason i'd pick the asx 300 etf is it'll give me a, a much broader exposure to the to the ASX versus say an ASX 200 um, because the ASX 200 would basically be 30%. I mean, the ASX 300 would also be the same thing, but it'll at least give me exposure to um, a lot of the smaller, higher growth companies um, on on the ASX, right? Which would typically be all generally below the ASX 100 mm. is where you know you get the higher growth, smaller, higher growth companies. Mm. So that's that combination with something like an S and P 500 or a Nasdaq 100 uh, would be interesting. Or if I wanted to have, you know, international divided as you know, uh, say. Western countries or mostly like an S&P 500, for example, or a NASDAQ 100 give us us exposure to most of the Western world and Asia ETF. Uh, The one we discussed in the the last podcast was the the Asian Tigers ETF, which is is the tech 50 type of ETF uh, for Asia. That in combination with the ASX 300 and ASX 300 ETF, that sort of combination uh, would be good, you know, and I'd expect slightly, you know, slightly higher than on average market returns because it's in a combination of different types of markets and uh, different types of industries that we are, you know, you're taking tech, for example, as one, you know, and that sort of thing would do, uh, at least in my view, if, if one wanted to do just um, an ETF type of approach. Very nice. I um, look. I'm going to largely agree with that, mate. This is this is for most of our listeners a question of how comfortable they are with volatility, and how comfortable they are with um, investing outside Australia fundamentally. So I, I would agree with you completely. I uh, so you know for for a particular family member, um, I have. Uh, suggested a simple with with a, with a not huge amount of money. I'm not going to add regularly. I've suggested a simple two stock portfolio, which is an uh, Sol Pats, which I own shares off for the record, as a proxy for the ASX because I don't love overexposure to the banks, and the Nasdaq ETF as an exposure to effectively I won't say the rest of the world because it's just the US. Although those businesses have very very big international operations, but a simple two stock portfolio is an ETF, a Nasdaq ETF, and a and Sol Pats, for example. That's one that's one solution, um, and that's it. Uh, I, I don't think you need unless you and again. So this is sorry. Let me say that first. Second thing I would say is um, if you want a more representative global portfolio, then as Doc's already said, the ASX 300 plus the um, there's a Vanguard, which is basically the rest of the developed world, excluding Australia, which by to get together is the entire developed world. You get Australia in one, and the rest of the world in the other. You could do that as, as a half-half portfolio as well, um, if you just want pure. Pure, pure, broad index diversification. That's one way to do it. Um, I don't think you need, unless you want volatility protection, there's almost no circumstance I can imagine under which property, particularly uh, investment property in this, you know, in an ETF form, uh, or bonds or cash actually outperforms the stock market over any length of time. And so buying those, you are deliberately, if not, if not, if you don't know about it, you actually are, but <laughs> um, the, the existence of that would actually help probably to lower slightly your volatility of your portfolio but also in the process lowers the overall total long-term return of your portfolio. So if you want the volatility protection to some degree, by all means, take it. Just be very, very aware that in almost in almost certainly over the long term, you are going to be handicapping your own portfolio in doing so. So there is a price to pay for volatility protection. Um, that is a price worth paying if you're a nervous investor, if you're uncertain, if you simply want to move slowly and not get too freaked out. So that can be worth it, absolutely. And I'd rather people pay that insurance premium and not get freaked out than get freaked out and make bad decisions. If you don't think you're going to get freaked out, or hopefully if you know you're not going to get freaked out, uh, then the next best option, I think, and Docking, you may disagree, um, is simply to be all shares. And even, I'd argue, more than half of that being overseas. I think, you know, we, we, we kind of like our home markets in Australian dollars. We know the company, so we feel good about it. 
A, your job, eventually your home will be in Australia, so you've got plenty of exposure to the Australian market anyway. Um, also B, there's a decent chance that some of the world's biggest and best companies that are already overseas continue to be the biggest and best companies in the world. And Australia has 2% of the world's markets. To have a 2% exposure to Australia globally market, but then have 50% of my portfolio in it, seems a little bit counterproductive, right? So there is decent value in having at least half and maybe even more than half of that ETF exposure based overseas. Anything more, Doc? No, I have nothing to add. Let's move on. We got a question from a guy on, this is Instagram, mate. Love it. Yeah, more Insta, more now, Insta stuff. You know what I love about Instagram? Instagram is you can actually, well, they don't, you don't need, well, you don't need to put your name, right? So the question that we have comes from someone who identifies themselves as 100% that Mitch. I love that. But but don't you need to put pictures? Why are people writing text on Instagram? This doesn't make sense to me. Well, I'm so confused. Mate, if people start sending me pictures and trying to get me to interpret those as questions on the podcast, you're in trouble. What? That's what I thought Instagram <laughs> is for. I thought in, uh, my impression of Instagram is that's where you send your coffee pictures. Thank you. And the pictures of your dog. We're moving and on. And your cat. We're moving on. Okay, fine. 100% that Mitch, who I assume is Mitch, but God knows on Instagram, could be anything. Says, hi, Scott. Love the podcast. I have a question relating to ethical investing. You have clearly voiced your opinion. I think that's probably him being kind, but saying I rant about it a lot. You have clearly voiced your opinion that you don't believe in ethical investing and that you are better off to invest in what will give you the greatest returns and use those returns to better the cause you feel strongly about. What is your opinion on ethical investing within your super? I'm only 23, so I will not see any money from my super for another 45 years. Seeing as that is the case, I cannot use the gains made in the market in my fund to better the causes I do believe in. Would love to hear your thoughts considering the stark differences between personal investing and personal super investing. Cheers and full on, Mitch. The question is for you. I have, I'm, I'm itching to give an answer for Stop this laughing. one. <laughs> you have a different answer. I, no, I have an answer actually. For you okay. Well, so here's here's my answer for that. All right. Uh, See if you're right or wrong. Well, <laughs> I'm always right. I'm right. But here's the answer. So, Mitch, I, I love the, you know, I'm a big believer in sustainability and all things sustainable. Um, yeah. You're and, right so and, far. And, and, and I love that. <laughs> but here's how I would look at my super fund. If investing in sustainable something is going to give me a better investment return, I would do it. If not, I would take the better investment return. And why would I take the better investment return? Because the whole point of super is to have plenty of funds post-retirement. If I can secure that, I've not only helped myself, but I've helped my government, I've helped my country because my country and my government don't need to look after me. If I have excess funds left over... I can actually use that to support whatever cause I want to support at that time. So, so broadly, I think you know, becoming sustainable oneself helps sustain other things, and 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 I take that philosophy. And then the the other point would be that you know most of the investments we make are in the secondary market. What we do in the secondary market really has little impact. Uh, you know, we can we can all stop buying shares of you know whatever Alteria, but Alteria or you know what's it called Alteria or whatever it's called uh, Altria, Altria, which is the cigarette company. Yep. but the cigarette company still did very well. So not owning <laughs> the not owning the stock of the cigarette right. company basically made you poor. And if it made you poor uh, or poorer, uh, then it didn't help your cause, and therefore it didn't help you know follow on causes. Anyway, that's my answer. Rant over. I think you are dead right, Doc. I'm going to add to it though, just very quickly, because I want to amplify your last point and then and then answer Mitch's question. So, the reason, look, I'm not against ethical activities. I'm not against. In fact, I'm pro um, those activities. I am a personal believer in the science of climate change. I think our government is doing a woeful job of responding to it, and that is a policy view, not a political one. I don't care which government, which party, which politician. Um, I don't believe as a country we're doing enough. You can agree or disagree with that. You're welcome to. Uh, but that's my personal view and that's worth sharing because it does inform my views and my my comments. So that said, you might think, well, if if I believe that, I should then want everyone to invest ethically. As Doc's already mentioned, and the secondary market is an important term. It's a bit of a jargony one, so I'm going to try and just break it down a little bit. The primary market or the initial public offering market, i.e. when companies float on the stock market, is when you give money to the company and or to the shareholders who are selling out to list on the ASX, right? So if they're raising capital to do their thing, if BHP was to come to the market, let's say it was listed today, uh, it might be a $50 billion, $50 million company, sorry, this little Broken Hill mining company came to the market and said, hey, we want to bigger, dig a deeper, wider mine. Can you give us some money to do that? That money is going to a company, adding to that company's capital, helping it do a thing. 
Now, if you're anti-mining, you might say, I don't want to invest in that. And that would be completely right. And from an ethical perspective, if that was your ethical view, you'd be completely okay and completely, you know, exactly the right thing to do. It might be a cigarette company raising capital for a new cigarette plant. It might be a gun company raising money to invest in some R&D for, for some, new, you know, some new ammunition. That stuff would be absolutely directly direct action impact investing. You're choosing to or not fund a company's activities. Once that company is already listed on the ASX, so BHP, how many decades ago, every time I buy shares from Doc or sell my shares to Doc, we're changing money between us. The company doesn't know nor care, nor does it get any money from, the person that owns the shares. So if I own BHP and Doc doesn't, or he owns the shares and I don't, neither of us is more or less ethical in the sense that we're not adding or subtracting money from the company's ability to do its thing. And so ethical investing in that sense is just a feel-good exercise. It has literally, 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 literally zero impact on the company, the economy, the environment, um, the actions of that company. It is just, you know, we all feel good by doing it if we do it. But it makes absolutely no difference, right? It's it's the, I won't say it's directly greenwashing, but frankly, it's kind of, you know, people are doing it to try and help the world. It's not making a zack of difference. So Mitch, what's important there and why I say that is because I'm not saying don't, you know, you mentioned that I say, you know, invest in the best result and then give you money to a good cause. That's absolutely true. But if you don't give your money to a good cause, the, the, the act of buying or not buying a so-called ethical company makes no difference to them at all. So whether you buy them with your own money or your super, it still makes no. It still benefits the world in no impact whatsoever. No, it just doesn't make a single zack of difference to what the company does, how it operates, what it doesn't do. Um, and so, frankly, whether you do it with super or your personal money, it just just literally makes no difference. Now, I've had lots of conversations about this on social media, and uh, with with the absolute respect to people who've corresponded with me, generally speaking, they just don't want to believe it. Right? There's just that sense of like, but it has to be true because I want to do something. I want my investing to matter, and I want my money to matter, and so I'm investing this way. And I get it, and we kind of desperately want it to be true. It's just not. And so that can be hard for people to hear. And on social media, that's been hard for people to hear. Mitch, if you sleep better by investing in companies that are ethical in your framework, then by all means, go for it, mate. I don't want to tell you not to do it. I just want everyone to know if they do it, it is not making a difference to the environment. I don't say that with glee or with schadenfreude or anything else. I wish it did. I desperately wish that by changing who we invest in, we could change the the way the world's run. It just doesn't work that way. So... Um, whether you would do it with your super, with your own account, it just makes literally no difference. The only difference is if you invest in companies, you're giving money to companies, not to another shareholder, but direct to companies to make a difference. If I was going to go and invest in a new wind farm, give a wind farm company 100 bucks, I hear, go and use this money to build your windmill, then that is impact investing. That absolutely can change the world. If I was to not, as I said earlier, not give money to a cigarette manufacturer to build a new plant, then they may have a greater trouble building that plant. That matters. Once the company's listed, once the shares are already listed, it just doesn't matter. Um, to Doc's point, absolutely, I completely agree. Use the super, make as much money as you can within super, and then when you get the payout, by all means, use that money to contribute to charity, to contribute to a cause, to back a particular idea, or as Doc said, just become self-sufficient and take some weight off the rest of the country so that the government's money can be used for other things as well. It's a bit of a rant. I didn't mean it to be, but Mitch, it's just really important. I'm not, I'm not saying don't invest ethically because you can do better elsewhere, I'm saying don't invest ethically in air quotes because it doesn't matter at all. Um, don't do it anyway. But if you if you are gonna if you do want to add to a, or help a cause, then at least use the profits from those investments you make to help that cause. If you don't help, help the cause, by all means, don't. But it won't matter where you put your money when it comes to the ASX. Was that too much of a rant? No, I think it's it's all, all on point. Oh, I feel better now too. All right, mate. Next question comes from Brendan. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, Brendan says one for the next mailbag. I'm not sure if we, well, it probably was the next mailbag, but as I said, it's been a little bit, of a, we've, been, we've been stacking them up. So uh, thank you for being patient, Brendan. Hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. Feel free to insert any other compliment here. Okay, deal. Um, Brendan said that I am the best looking, funniest bloke he's ever heard on a podcast. And Doc is the smartest, most erudite bloke in the world. Thanks, Brenda. That's very kind of you. I thought we could we could, we could switch that around. Oh, either way, mate. I'm busy. <laughs> we'll do we'll do it in post. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, here we go. Scott, probably one up more up your alley, but there is a Tesla reference. Oh dear, this could be a long one. So here, keen to hear from both of you on how to overcome the logic versus emotional or psychological bias on the 12 month CGT reduction in buy sell decision making. So what he's basically saying is, well, let me explain it. Mm. I've always struggled, he says, with the when to sell decision. But in this case, my real world example, 
The CGT discount, the capital gains tax discount, is the issue. I have access to salary sacrifice to purchase stock in my company at a discount, which is a great forced savings plan. Every six months, I get an allocation of new shares that I've purchased, at which time my options are, one, sell the stock immediately for market value, taking a a profit of approximately 15% less tax and reinvest it elsewhere, or two, hold the stock for at least 12 months, lock in the CGT discount, then consider whether to hold or sell and reinvest. While I'm happy building my portfolio with my company shares in it, I don't want it to become too large a proportion of my portfolio as I continue to acquire more stock. In my purchase last July last year, I considered immediately selling to buy Tesla. He says, go doc in brackets. Dear, oh dear. But decided holding for 12 months was better at that time with a view to potentially acquire Tesla once the 12-month time frame had passed. Since then, my stock has appreciated about 8% which is a good return, whilst Tesla has, of course, doubled. Generally advice, general advice only, of course. However, when do you see the lure of compounding and CGT reduction from the buy and hold approach to outweigh the regular sell and invest decision? Cheers for the regular dose of foolish insight. Good man. Thank you. That's a good question, Brendan. So bottom line, Doc, tempting to want to sell out and buy something else. Also tempting to reduce the tax bill a little bit by holding for 12 months at least and locking in, basically halving, of the capital gains tax you'd otherwise pay? This is a brilliant question, Brendan, and because no. this is uh, this is fantastic because this affects every one of yes, them. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, I think about it. Here's, okay, it's, and I'll say what it's easy to say, but it's very difficult to actually execute on. Yep. Um, generally speaking, my belief is that you don't want uh, the tail to kind of wag the dog in the sense that if... If there is an investment that you think is substantially superior, and I'm going to caveat that in a couple of ways, then mm-hmm. the other one, then you want that substantially superior investment because that substantially superior investment is substantially superior because it's going to compound at a higher rate. Yep. You acquire it early and you hold on for the long term and therefore it's going to compound at a higher rate, right? And and, and therefore, paying the tax early on on this other not-so-superior investment makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Now... I don't know anything about the company that you you work for and the, your shares and and and, I, and the logic of not being overweight the shares of the company in which you work for totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all of that is fine, um, and you know that shares as you said have increased nine percent. Now t- Tesla, you say you know, has doubled or actually tripled probably from July uh, now when we are talking about it. But uh, that that. I think is the two things happening here. We are anchoring on different things. We are anchoring on the increase as well because, you know, the stock may not have tripled as well, right, or doubled or whatever. So uh, so that comparison, I think, is is flawed because of that reason. Um, that said, I think here's one thing to think about. In general, when it comes to selling, I tend to be slow. Mm. The reason I tend to be slow, especially when I, let, let me again caveat that a little bit more. If I think a thesis is broken, then I think it's I think it's worthwhile selling. What I, I'm really actually slow about is doing this, uh, what I call the re- replacement investment decision. And I'll explain that as follows. Um, let's say that you're right about 60% of the time, right? So then what you're trying to do is you're trying to basically say, well, I don't like this investment that much, but I like that other investment a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm going to flip this one to that one. Mm-hmm. Now, you, if you're right 60% of the time, then you're going to be right 60% in this selling decision. Mm-hmm. But you can also be right 60% for that buying decision, assuming the two of them are independent. What has actually happened is that the cumulative probability that both of those decisions are correct actually goes down. It goes down from being 60% to now 36%. Right. So, so that math is that math is important, right? So the six out of ten comes from Peter Lynch's view that we've found in our own experiences about right. That if you Peter Lynch's quote is if you're good in this game, you're right six times out of ten. It's not an exact quote, but it's close enough to exact. In other words, you expect to be right sixty percent of the time, wrong forty percent of the time. And if that to Doc's point, the way probability works is if you multiply a sixty percent position, a sixty percent probability, sorry, with a sell, and the following sixty percent chance of getting the buy right. 60% times 60% in this context means you're right 36% of the time. You actually go from being probably right to probably wrong. Yeah. So that's why... That's, that's a big why, deal. Yeah, that's a big deal, which is why I think, you know, which is why I, I basically, from my own personal portfolio, I'm really, I'm like, there are 
things that I hold, which were fast growers and fast compounders like five years ago that I still hold because, right. you know, making that switch unless I can be really, really certain is really hard. So I try to avoid that. So I wouldn't repent this type of thing where one is slow if the decision making process was, ah, you know, like, you know, <laughs> this is going to be, this is good enough. Yep. That's slightly better. I really don't know. Um, but yeah, if the decision was, you can, I think this is going to compound at 10% and that's going to compound at 30%, mm. then I think it's kind of, the decision could have been, well, okay, if I think this is 10% and that's 30% then, and I'm, I'm fairly feeling good about it, then that switch makes sense. But otherwise, one got to be careful when making this. So I think nothing wrong in 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 trying to um, trying to buy something with cash from something else, but just be careful that, you know, is the flip working in your favor? Have you made sure that the probability is going to work out for you? That's one. Um, yeah, and then the other general thought is that if you want to sell something because it's it's worthwhile selling for whatever reason, diversification reason, or because the thesis is not working out, uh, then don't, I wouldn't, personally, I don't let the, the tax tale sort of, you know, tell me what to do. If, yep. if, it's, if it's got a, it's, if it's a sell, it's a sell yep. at that point. Yep. And I sell it. And if it's for diversification, I'll sell for diversification. If it's, if it's for because I'm not happy with the thesis, then I'll sell for that. So those are my two thoughts. Great thoughts, mate. I'm only going to summarize slightly differently, but the same thoughts. I completely agree with you. Um, our job as investors is to maximize your after-tax return not to pay the least possible tax, which is exactly what Doc said. So if you think about you own $1,000 worth of shares now, if you have to pay $100 by selling now or $50 by selling in 12 months' time, it doesn't really matter. The question is, okay, if, if that's if that's true, my after-tax return is either 900 bucks now or, or sorry, yeah, or uh, 950 later, that's fine. Can I invest that money in something that's going to be higher than that by that point, right? And even a year is way too short, right? Because we know we're long-term investors anyway. Uh, but you should have your money and your best ideas anyway. So if you think that keeping the, the company shares today and letting them compound or selling, getting a little bit less after you paid your tax and letting that compound, simply ask yourself, which one's the higher return? My $1,000 growing at 8% if that's what you think is going to happen or $900 growing at 20%, well, should be a reasonably easy decision to make. Now, if you're less sure, then again, to Doc's point, maybe minimize the number of decisions you're making, reduce the number of actual decisions. It's tempting in your case. I know the Tesla share price doubled or tripled. Um, Doc's told me all about that for a very long time. Um, <laughs> keeps reminding me. Um, but the reality is, it, so you could be, you could have sent us an email, right, in a different stock or some, the same stock in a different time frame, and saying, so my company stock went up 8%, but my Tesla shares fell by two thirds. What, sh what should I have done? Now, you'll feel definitely much better about it because you're looking with hindsight at both of them, right? So you, you can't do that. All you can do is say, right, over the long term, which one's going to compound more after I've paid tax if I sell? So starting the current one without the tax being paid, the other one after the tax being, is being paid, and simply do the maths on that. If you don't think it's going to be significantly different, keep what you've got because as Doc said, you, you double your chance of making a mistake, quite frankly, by making two different decisions. If you think one is obviously superior after tax, then go with that one. Any more for that, mate? No, I think that's that covers it. Beautiful. Mate, I've got a question, and it's about a company I don't know a whole lot about. Do you know anything about IDP education? Not really, not much. All right. So Unfortunately. I'm sorry, Priyanshu, we did get your question. Um, uh, look, he says, last five years, the stock growth was 518% and the yearly return of 85%. Should we still consider it a buy? I don't know. Doc doesn't know. Um, the only thing I would say is I looked at the... Um, I looked at the P. It's P of sixty. So, so my only my only thought on that is, unless you think that put the share price aside, who cares about what the share price has done in the past? If you owned it, great. If you didn't own it, too bad. The only question from now is what happens from today onwards. If you think it's going to be a market beater, by all means, go for it. Um, don't look at the past price, but do look at the valuation. And just it's got to do a decent amount of growth, mate, to justify a P of sixty, doesn't it? Well, I think so. Next question comes from again another Insta question from someone without a name. Tri fifty two. O or zero? O. Oh. Try 52O. I don't, I have nothing. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the question or statement is as such, the format is great. Love the high horse in the mailbag. Had a high horse for a while. My pets are let in for next week. <laughs> After the Australian long weekend, I'll see if I can come up with something. I'm going to blame Try 52O <laughs> for the next high horse pen. <laughs> he says, with the addition of guests and interviews, it would be great. Well, hopefully, you enjoyed the last couple of weeks. We had Warren Hogan and Eliza Rowan. We got some wonderful feedback. So thank you, everyone, who gave me that feedback. It was really nice to know you enjoyed it. We will do more of those. In fact, we've got another one, another recording coming up in a couple of weeks' time. So stay tuned for that. No, no names, no pack jewel just yet, but give us some time. Now the question is one for the one question for the bag. 
WTF. What's WTF stand for? Do you know? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> almost threw you under a bus, didn't I? Uh, what, the, what the Frankfurt is an index <laughs> and how are they valued? E.g. the ASX worth 7,000 points. Doc, what the Frankfurt is an index? I'm going to let you answer this because, <laughs> because it's a very technical question. You're very you like, good at technical. Yeah, answers. what you mean is you like me doing the boring ones. All right, so here's the deal. The, the boffins that be decided they wanted a way to measure the value of the stock market. Now, way, way, way back in the day, before computers, believe it or not, before, well, after abacuses, somewhere between abacuses and computers, they wanted to work out how much the stock market was moving around in any given period of time. What was the performance of the stock market? Now, the, the granddaddy of them all is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. You're going to be sorry you asked this question, try 520, but you did. Um, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is the worst index in the entire world when it comes to the way it's calculated. Because it was done so long ago, they literally took the per share price of 30 companies, I think it might have been 20 to start with, and basically added those together. So they had company one was had a dollar a share, company two was $15 a share, company three was $7 a share, and they said, right, total value, that's 23. So that's the index. <laughs> and, then, and then a day later, they kind of went, okay, well, now one's up to 23, $23.50. Therefore, the index has gone up by the best part of whatever that is, a quarter of a percent, something like that. And that's how they measured the Dow Jones Industrial Average. They literally added the share prices up of those 20 companies and measured how they changed over time. Now, we know with, the, with the, frankly, the extra computing power and the benefit of hindsight that if that was one company worth a million dollars and one company worth a billion dollars, adding the two together and saying that's what the stock market did is a silly idea. These days, they do it by market weight. They basically say, okay, well, a company that's worth a billion dollars is a thousand times the size of a million dollar company. So its impact on the market is a thousand times the size, right? Which makes sense because if it doubles, the value of all the companies on the index goes up by much more than if the million-dollar company doubles. So what they do is they basically take all of that market capitalization, all the value of all the shares together, they mash it up together, and they divide that to get a starting point. Now, with the ASX 200, they started with 1,000. So they said, okay, well, let's take all, let's add up all the value of not of the sh individual shares, but the total company. So Woolies is a, what is it, Doc, $30 billion company? Uh, yeah, uh, maybe a little bit more. Nearmap, you said the other day, was a billion-dollar company. There's plenty of those, BHP, CSL, Every company in the ASX 200 or the All Lords, depending on what index we're using, let's use the ASX 200 just for fun, added all those up. I said, right, all of those companies all together add up to so many billion dollars. We'll call that a value of a thousand. They basically just called, you know, said whatever that dollar value was, let's say it was, make it up, let's say it was $500 billion. That's a thousand. So that lets you track without looking at the actual dollar amounts because that gets silly. You don't want to know the market is worth you know, $538,255,225.24. You can't track that as an index. But if you know that is equal to 1,000 points, then the, the change in the index in percentage terms will be the same as the change in the market cap. So if the market cap of all the companies went up from $500 billion to $600 billion, that's a 20% increase. So the index would go from 1,000 to 1,200, the same 20% increase. And so by using a, a smaller number that's easier to track, without lots of decimal places and lots of commas, it just allows us to understand how much the value of the market has increased or decreased over a period of time. And that's that's basically what the index is. It's just a, it's a numerical representation of the total value of all of the companies on the ASX. I'm going to throw one more in, Doc, because I can, because I like the boring stuff. Remember, and this is really, really, really important for long-term investors, the index numbers do not include dividends. So last year in 2019 was a wonderful year for the market. The market was up about 20, 20 21%, 21% over the course of a year. But with dividends, it was up about 25%, about four percentage points difference. Now, that's not a big deal over short periods of time. But over long periods of time, when you start to compound that, dividends can be worth up to half of the total gains that an investor makes over their investment lifetime. If you only look at the index which measures the value of the companies and by definition then doesn't include the cash that's paid out by those companies, then all of a sudden you're undervaluing it. So that's how the index is calculated. That's why it's important. That's why it's useful. But please remember, it is not the be all and end all. In fact, it should be taken with a grain of salt. As always, when anyone says how the stock market went, you should say, does that include dividends? The answer is no. Say, well, what about with dividends? And that is the total investor return. That's the only number that matters for long-term investors. Anything from you, Doc? No, I have nothing to add. <laughs> have we got time for one more? Yeah, we can do one more. Let's do one more. Just because we can. 
We've got so much in the mailbag, mate. It is absolutely chocolate. Let's do one more. All right. We got a question from Boise. Uh, I can't see what this is. I'm going to assume this is for Instagram, mate, because I want to. I'm not sure if it is or not. It might be for, actually, no, this is from Twitter. Even better. Boise says, G'day, Scott and Doc. Happy New Year. Thank you, mate. Wondering if you have a view on Vista Group as the share price has taken a hammering of late but I'm not close enough to it to see any reason why. I read it as buying a controlling share of Vista China. Is that being viewed by the market as a bad move? Cheers, and of course, full on, Boise. Doc, Vista Group. Well, I, I don't have a very, like, you know, close view on this company. Um, th- there was some issues with growth in the past, mm. um, which resulted in some downgrades, I believe, which resulted in the stock being uh, pummeled. I mean, these, yeah. uh, these guys... Uh, basically provide software to the movie industry. And that might be a hint. <laughs> so, uh, well, and you know, what I would think is that, the, I mean, the movie industry is probably not growing at a rapid pace. We said movie, I, we're talking about the, the cinemas, the actual yeah, distributors, the, right? The, the cinemas, right? But I mean, that, that industry is not growing at a rapid pace. But, right. you know, once you use the software, I guess, you're going to be continuing to use the software. It's, it's, it should be steady recurring business. So to me, it appears like, you know, the valuation is kind of important in this type of business. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I can th- think of at this point. Yeah, no, mate. That, that's 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 also my perspective. It's it's a really successful business. It absolutely dominates its niche. Uh, to some degree, though, if you don't have well, so investors I think got a little bit too carried away with it. Quite honestly, is the first thing. Um, even after the share price fall, it's still on a P of just under fifty. So, uh, it's a really successful company. It's done really, really well as a business. It dominates its niche. The niche itself isn't particularly growing, unfortunately. And so, you just have to you have to price these things appropriately. And I think it may be the case that in hindsight, well, look. We don't know what's going to happen next, right? Maybe the company, you know, managed to grow profits again. The shares jump back up, and this is a short-term blip. That's absolutely possible. Or it's also possible that maybe investors in the past were simply too carried away. Uh, we tend to want to judge these things from today's vantage point. Uh, we probably should judge them from the future's vantage point, looking back, because we just don't know what happens next. Um, uh, so yeah, I think it, it's it's a really successful, you know, company, great business, doing, doing a really good job. It just doesn't have the growth that investors were expecting. Sometimes we say the company's done a bad job. Other times, it's frankly the investors' fault. They simply paid too much in the past. I don't know which one of those it'll be. My guess is it's probably, these things tend to get oversold unless there's more bad news to come. Um, So my guess it's probably cheaper than it deserves to be, but it probably was also in the past maybe more expensive than it needed to be with, with the benefit of hindsight. I think I agree with that completely. Guess what? I'll throw you another one just because I can. <laughs> Go for it. Sorry, mate. <laughs> this one's a quick one and I liked it and uh, I've got so many in the mailbag I want to get one more out so I will. Sorry, mate. This one's from Al Doblo. Thank you, Al, for uh, sh- frankly sharing your name firstly <laughs> to asking a question. This is a really good one, mate. It's a reasonably simple one why I want to throw it in the end because it gets us another one through the mailbag and, and gives our listeners some useful information. Hey, Scott and Doc, thanks for your amazing podcast. It's my must listen every week. Thank you, Al. It's very kind of you. Um, you probably should find some other things to listen to, but uh, yeah, don't, don't go anywhere. My question on international share ETFs. Should I buy hedged or unhedged? And when is one better than the other? Keep up the work, or the great work, full on, Al. Doc, international ETF. So if I'm buying a NASDAQ ETF, I can buy with one click, one purchase, the NASDAQ 100 companies in an ETF on the ASX. So I don't need a foreign brokerage account. I can simply buy one share or one unit in the NASDAQ ETF or one unit in the S&P 500 ETF. That's all great, but I'm buying in Australian dollars. That ETF is by definition priced in US dollars. I can get rid of that volatility by hedging it. In other words, the fund itself will make sure that the currency movement doesn't impact my investment. Is that good or bad? And what should I do? Well, I mean, that depends on your view. I mean, if you're you're taking the view, (laughs) uh, if you take the view that... um, uh, the dollar is going to work in your favor. Uh, or mm. when, I, when I said the dollar, I mean, if you think that the Australian dollar is going to become weaker or stay where it is, then you you probably don't want to hedge it. Mm-hmm. But if the Because the dollar falls, your US dollars are worth more. So if I invest now in the US and then bring it back later when the dollar is cheaper, yeah. I get more dollars. Yeah, effectively, effectively, you'll get more gains showing up on Australian dollars here on, on the ASX because mm-hmm. of the currency movement. Of course, if the currency acts against you, then if the NASDAQ... Uh, 100 ETF does 20%, you might actually do less than 20% right. because some of that is going to be eaten up by the dollar conversion. Yep. So there's a, my, my view on this is that this is really, the hedging is really useful on a short-term basis. Uh, if But again, if it's on a short-term basis, then you don't really want to be investing <laughs> in the market. So that's right. a little bit of an oxymoron right. there. But if, for all other practical purposes, I mean, you'd think that you, with international investing, you need to have some view of 
have a nice assumption, you know, of where the current exchange rate is going to be sitting on average over the long term, right? Mm. Um, now, you, you're likely to get that somewhat wrong sometimes. But, you, you know, one of the reasons for investing internationally might be that you think that that particular index, for example, might overall compound at a much higher rate. Mm. If it's going to compound at a much higher rate, then the question really is, you know, it's okay maybe to lose some or gain some. You know, if you lose right. some on, on the exchange rate, it's okay. But if you're going to compound at, say, 15 20% versus, say, compounding at 8 9%, that's a huge difference there, yep. which would add up over time. And therefore, the exchange rate becomes a little bit of a secondary thing. Now, you know, we, we're not, you know, exchange rate is a big deal if, you know, we were a banana republic. We are not, right? So, I mean, you, we would think our exchange rate would generally be mm. in some band, um, barring, you know, substantive uh, economic, uh, you know, shifts and things like that, mm. right? So, you know, on that view, like, you know, my own preference is an unhedged, uh, you know, you know, just take the exchange rate as they come. And I think it's more important, I guess I'll add one more thing and then I'll turn it over to you, is if you're, especially if, if I'm buying an ETF over time mm-hmm. and I'm dollar cost averaging. Oh, mate, you're stealing my thunder here. Yeah, so I knew that you were going to go there. So I thought <laughs> I might as well steal it because you said the last question, so Go I might on. as well steal it. <laughs> <laughs> um, then by buying, you know, periodically you're effectively getting the benefit of that hedging sometimes when the exchange rate is in your favor yep. you are buying more shares <laughs> um, yep. or actually the exchange rate is not yeah the exchange rate is in your favor you're buying more shares if the exchange rate is not in your favor you're buying less shares but effectively you're getting the same benefit yep. so I don't know yeah as I said hedging seems to be a very short term thing to do and short term thing is not what you want to do in the market so yeah that's my answer Yep, I completely agree. The only time I'd buy hedged is if I felt like the dollar was at unsustainable levels in either direction, depending on what you were going to do. Um, if the dollar got down to 40 cents, I'd be buying hedged all the way because the chances are that over the long term, the dollar ends up being higher than it is at that very, very low levels. At the current level, who knows what the future is going to bring? Maybe it's high, maybe it's lower in 10 years. Nobody knows. Now, some people say, well, then I want to be hedged because then I have no risk. The problem is nothing is free, right? So if you're hedging, then someone's paying for that hedging. You're effectively, the company, the, the the fund that's doing the hedging is paying someone else to take that risk for you and that doesn't come free. So effectively by hedging, you are paying someone else again for that volatility protection we talked about. Doc's point is absolutely the best one, the dollar cost averaging one. Add money regularly. If you've been doing it over the last 10 years, you would have been adding money at $1.10 uh, during the GFC, adding money at $0.50, cents, um, now adding money at 68 69 The reality is over time, you're getting about average. And again, the other thing is too, if you're a long-term investor, here's the best part, I reckon. You actually get to choose when you want to sell. So if I'm investing any money in overseas markets, either through an ETF or directly, I would be doing only with money that I absolutely don't need to sell at any given particular time. If I knew I needed to sell on the 31st of December, 2028, exactly that day, I wouldn't do any of it because I don't know what the exchange rate will be then. And that's actually more important than the buy price, particularly if you're dollar cost averaging. If I knew I needed to sell sometime after 2025, but before 2032, well, then I figure I can actually wait till I get offered a, a decent or actually very attractive exchange rate. Or if I don't want to try and pick the top, I can at least avoid the bottom. If the dollar is 48 cents at that point, oh, sorry, that's actually good. If the dollar is $1.10 by that point, I can simply say, well, I'm not going to take it back yet. I don't need to cash out at that particular point in time. I've got the time. I've got the flexibility. I'll cash out when I'm ready. So that's my that's my best advice is dollar cost average to Doc's point and also only put money in overseas markets, if, particularly if you're unhedged, where you don't need to do it at a specific arbitrary time that someone else can make you do because you might be forced to liquidate at the wrong share price and the wrong exchange rate, which would be a terrible thing to do. So always, always be long-term, be even longer-term and even less locked in when it comes to any investments denominated in another currency. Doc, any more to add? No, I think you still got an extra good point there. Thank about you, mate. The selling well, point. I've got to add something. I, I, was, trying to steal, I, was, I was trying to steal all your thunder, <laughs> but it didn't really work. Of, okay. Speaking of value, there is no better value than getting 12 months of Anirban Mahanti's stock recommendations for only $79. That's right. Advertising alert. For only 79 bucks, you can join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities with Anirban Mahanti and Kevin Gandia, who works with him and get at least a dozen recommendations, plus lots of great advice, commentary, best buys now, all the good stuff you hear on this program from Doc, and a whole lot more for 79 bucks. That's less than $1.50 a week. Seriously, this podcast's worth more than that, and we don't even give you a recommendation a month. Join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, get Doc's best advice and Kevin's best advice too, two for the price of one, for a very, very, very cheap price, $79 for your first year. Simply go to fool.com.au forward slash EO, that's for extreme opportunities, 
fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. And you can join Motley Fool's Extreme Opportunities for only $79 for your first year. There is, uh, I'm biased. I reckon there is any better value in investing than that. If you, I don't know how much you'd pay a financial advisor for 15 minutes of their time. I don't know how much money you'd have to pay for, well, frankly, it's more than that for a year subscription to the AFR and they don't give you any stock tips. It has got to be the best value in finance. If you're enjoying listening to Doc, and I'm sure you are, I reckon you'll not only enjoy, but also get a lot of value out of his, by the way, market-beating investment advice. Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. That's fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Give him some love. Join his service. He deserves it. Join. <laughs> and that wraps us up, Fools, for our special first of 2020 mailbag special podcast episode before we go don't forget you can and you should subscribe to the triple m motley full money podcast through itunes or everybody repeat after me your favorite android podcast app and if you like what we're doing please give us a five-star rating on itunes leave us a review tell your friends luke i'm looking at you from the last episode uh, i'm sure you could they could use a little foolish straight talk too and don't forget you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple m triple m that's it for this week's motley fool money we'll be back next week we'll be back on tuesday with money hacks but we'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight fool on fool on The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.